0: Once I opened the folder and just saw these photographs and these personal diaries, I felt like I was seeing something very familiar.
1: For years, Simon Fisher has been researching the history of LGBTQ activism. He's been looking specifically at its presence in the early civil rights movement.
0: I read about Pauli Murray kind of on the side and didn't really think that much about it. But then I I got the opportunity to go to Pauli Murray's personal papers. And when he did,
1: Simon found himself tapping into a whole new perspective on Pauli Murray's life, and more specifically, Murray's gender identity.
0: I identify as transgender myself, and just the sort of, like, expressions of masculinity and kind of uh, in the pictures and these sort of consternations and worries about gender and identity and medical treatments and and things like that, I I really saw something that spoke to me. And it's not to say that, you know, the same things are happening then as we're happening now, but there was a a resonance and, and I felt like I just had to keep learning.
1: As you heard earlier in the episode, Polly Murray's gender and sexual identity were fluid, But Polly didn't really talk about this in public or write about it in memoirs. So to fill in the blanks, historians like Simon have relied more on Murray's private archive. And they've used resources like a collection of photographs that Murray took in the late 1920s and early 30s when Murray was a young adult.
0: What we see is this very queer I like to say, joy and pleasure in that self-documentation. Like, Murray took pictures of themselves as a, you know, male, masculine, really, really happy person (laughs) out in the woods, climbing trees, playing sports, dressing up, grinning with their partner. And to include that in one's archive is really rare. So historian's Put a lot of pieces together because those very stark images are often not held on to and not made public. But it it made it through. And so it's it's a very rare find. And it helps historians draw a lot of very kind of clear conclusions, I think, about what was going on for them.
1: Even from an early age, Polly knew something was different. And Simon says that was okay with Polly's family. In fact, Polly's uniqueness was welcomed with open arms
0: Both of their aunts who they grew up with were school teachers. Polly Murray excelled at school when they were young, but then also played sports, but then also wanted to write, but then also really wanted to read. And so the way that that Polly Murray tells this the story about their gender, as a young person is also wrapped up in this, they wanted to wear like boys' clothes and but also wear it with these weird dresses and sort of like the story is wrapped up in a larger uh, feeling of being really supported, which I really I, it's kind of like a sweet spot in their story that I really love.
1: So, Polly Murray grows up in this kind of surprisingly supportive environment and yet still goes to Harlem. What's that? Migration, like, and what does that mean for Polly Murray?
0: I think for me, and I like my kind of what I do, quote unquote, with Polly Murray's story is I really try to locate it in a larger African American history of sexuality, gender history, Mm -hmm. and for me, the answer to the question is: Well, everybody went to Harlem. The going to Harlem was such a norm by this period, by the mid nineteen twenties, you know. Young African-American educated kids who were too smart for, quote unquote, their own good, meaning that their displeasure with Jim Crow racial norms was going to get them in trouble with the white establishment, be that violence, economic reprisal, lack of opportunity, many, many, many educated African-Americans left the South We never hear from Murray saying, oh, I'd love to migrate to Harlem because it's like the biggest queer thing happening in the whole of American history. (laughs) But I can't help but wonder if there was a bit of a draw, (laughs) you know, we'll never know. But I believe that we can't forget about what was going on in Harlem at that time, when we look at Murray's choice to migrate.
1: But it was in the 30s, right, that Murray's gender identity and sexuality began to cause some intense emotional distress, right?
0: Yeah, in the early 30s. The photographs from that period and their writing, their diaries, really exude a sort of like youthful sense of possibility with the gender and sexuality stuff. And then my hypothesis is that they start to really get more involved in activism, what I think might be happening is that they start to get that pushback from the standards of respectability. And they, they start to feel like that their sort of like honest expression isn't going to really do them any favors if they want to get ahead as a sort of race leader.
1: And Murray resists the label of homosexual, right? Right
0: yeah, there's a bit of a of a history of sexuality lesson in this because I think what happens is people see in their archive and in their history that they resisted the label of homosexual. so therefore they must be internally homophobic. just and then it's kind of like reels right. out to like, oh, the church, blah blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I totally disagree with that mm-hmm. interpretation. um because in this historical moment, what we're starting to get in a broader American history of sexuality is the, the splitting off between homosexuality as an issue of sexual desire that's seen as a psychological, quote-unquote, problem or a psychological deviancy. We're seeing to see that separated from gender Or like a cross-gender identification or what we would now call kind of transgender, right? Mm -hmm. Which was seen at the time, especially in the the black intellectual community, as being a problem of the body, of actually a glandular disorder. Now that we think about testosterone and estrogen, like those are hormones. and, And so the making of a medical understanding of transgender is happening right at this moment, and so when we look at Murray's archive, there's all of these handwritten questions for these doctors. And so many of them revolve around these questions of glands. Hmm. And I, when I was doing my research, I looked at that, and I was like, why is Polly Murray so obsessed with glands? And one of the historians that, that has just written, Rosalind Rosenberg, who recently wrote an amazing biography of Polly Murray sees that this discussion of gender variance as a glandular disorder is science that's in like the 1910s and 1920s. But if you look at the black press, the the newspapers that are written and read within the black community in Harlem, in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, gender nonconformity is still being seen as a glandular issue. And so my interpretation of this Murray didn't want to be called a homosexual, is because prior to this splicing of homosexuality and gender nonconformity, the idea of the invert, this is like an old-fashioned term, but still had a lot of salience for a lot of people, not medical people, but for a lot of other folks, where one's sort of same-sex desire was part and parcel of one's cross-gender identity. So Walt well, Murray identified as someone who was really masculine, so of course it made sense that they were attracted to feminine women because that was part of the identity package. And so I think that Murray's sort of distaste for the label of homosexuality was because that invert identity really worked for them and so to splice off homosexuality and then call it a psychological disorder really did not resonate with them.
1: As you pointed out, Murray wrote a lot of memos to doctors and was yeah. hospitalized quite often. D- tell us about that.
0: It's pretty much like every time a relationship crashes and burns, they really lose it. They're really challenged, uh, really devastated. And what seems to happen is that they're not taking care of themselves they're not eating enough. They're not sleeping enough. They're overworked. It's the depression, right? Like, it's, it's a stressful time, <laughs> you know, to be a black young person in Harlem. But their distress seems to stem from what they call, quote, my conflict, which my understanding of it is that it's a conflict between their desire for feminine women, their female assigned sex, and their masculine gender identity. And then the conflict of that package against sort of social norms, both within and outside of the black community. But yeah, they keep talking about my conflict. Like, what's the source of my conflict? What's the way out? What's going to ease my conflict? And so a lot of the things that they ask are like, well, what medical interventions will ease my conflict? Can you do some surgical investigation? What if I have an undescended testy? What if I have like a glandular disorder? And so all of these questions are pointing to an understanding of, quote, this conflict within a discourse or a conversation around glands, a glandular problem as a cause of cross-gender identification.
1: Well, it's clear that Murray had thought a lot about this and, and researched it a lot and to have so many questions and even suggestions, right, of what the diagnosis should be, right?
0: Yeah, and it also points to the fact—and and so what I did when I saw this these lines of questions, I started looking at newspapers— Black newspapers that that everybody, you know, in Harlem, the kind of reading public was consuming. Because in Polly Murray's archive, and I think this is this is the key document that really to me was like, okay, I need to apply a sort of transgender understanding across gender identification is going on here. So what what drew that conclusion for me? was there's an article clipped in Murray's archive, right? Right. So you're, like, flipping through the folder, and here's this yellowed newspaper. Like, I'm a historian. I love this stuff, right? It's basically a headline that appeared on the front page of the New York Amsterdam News. The front page is basically about one of the first testosterone trials. Wow. Where – these little white pills. And I did all the research on the doctor and what what the experiments were. And they took these little crystalline testosterone tablets and they actually sewed them under the skin surfaces of these quote unquote effeminate men. And lo and behold, they got muscles and they got facial hair. And so Murray clips the newspaper and then Polly Murray takes the information about the testosterone trial, goes to the clinic where they're holding the testosterone trial, and is like, okay, how do I get in? Polly Murray is not the only person thinking about this. It's on the front page of the largest red black newspaper in Harlem. Like, this is a big issue on people's minds, not just marginalized, you know, queer and, and gender nonconforming people, but it's of issue to the general public. And I think that that's so interesting and a really, really overlooked part of their story. (laughs) You know, we get a lot of stories about lonely transsexuals trying to figure themselves out, you know. I don't think that that's the case. Like, there's a lot of evidence that they were really distressed in a lot of ways. But the conversation around gender nonconformity in especially big urban northern black neighborhoods is not unique. It's not rare. It's not It's not a lonely project.
1: So later in life, it seems that Murray identified more closely with being female in terms of gender identity. Why was that the case?
0: I take my cue from Brittany Cooper's work on Pauli Murray here. And I think what Cooper documents really well is in this sort of 1943, 44 era, two things, two really big things happen. One is that Murray's sort of like three-year effort to get into this testosterone trial to sort of like provide an answer for this conflict. So I think what's happening is Murray sees these testosterone trials as a resolution to quote my conflict. And they try and try and try and try. And effectively, all of the medical experts say, basically, like, can't you just accept that you're a homosexual? (laughs) Like, you're a woman. You're attracted to women. We have a word for that. You can get help in these other ways, or you could try female hormones. That might, you know, help you feel less conflicted as well. Uh, and Murray totally rejects both of those options. And I think in a large way moves on, figures out that, that they just have to move on. Right. And at the same time, they start to go to law school. And the sexism they experience just seems to really change the way they think about themselves, the race, the way that Black activism should happen. And I think that it makes a lot of sense for them to, I don't want to say identify with, but join the project of Black women's empowerment within racial activism. I don't know if it means that they started identifying as the recipient of that work, but they definitely, that was how they did all of their activism from there on out. This sort of mid-40s moment is when they start beginning to understand gender as a social construction and race as a social construction, and where Jane Crow, the term, becomes the way that they see things, their social analysis. So, you
1: know, issues of uh, pronouns come up in you know Polly Murray's life, and I'd be curious how you think about that and choices that you've made, and why you think people make other choices.
0: Yeah, you know I've I've published two academic articles on Polly Murray, and the first one I used this very awkward s slash he in every instance of pronouns in that paper, and in between publishing that paper. And publishing the last paper I did two years ago, Rosalind Rosenberg came out with this biography and has this beautiful introduction about her own sort of journey of how to use polymory pronouns because it's important to really balance contemporary notions mm-hmm. of trans awareness and right. respect with historical accuracy, right? And it's a balance. I mean, it's definitely, I don't know who's what's right. What I do as a trans person in my community, which is not representative, but is my experience, you kind of use the most recent pronoun available. So if someone goes by he until they're 40 and then goes by she, you call them she, even if you're talking about their childhood. I see. And so if one were to apply that to Murray's life, the last pronoun that Maury went by, and, as we understand, the sort of closest thing they came to an identification of a singular gender was them being a woman and using she and her pronouns. And so, out of respect for that last choice, I switched and i and I used she for the last article. And I've gotten some questions and some pushback about whether that was right, and i'm I'm not sure it the jury's out about how to do this. I, I think that as more trans history is written, there will become a sort of academic or social norm about what we do with pronouns for people who didn't have access to gender variant pronouns, right, right. you know, mm-hmm. or to like trans identity. Well, how are we going to use pronouns for them? Are we going to call everybody they? Like, what? how are we going to do this? So I think that the norms will be established as more and more histories get written. Uh, but for now, I feel... Comfortable calling Marie she for oh gosh now it even sounds awkward if I use it right <laughs> like for their whole life her whole life I mean I'm a trans person and this still feels really awkward you know I I think that out of respect for the last pronouns right. I use she mm-hmm. but I don't know if I'm right I, I just don't know.
1: Simon Fisher is a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
2: My name is Dr. Parker T. Hurley, and I live in Durham, North Carolina. And this is Prophecy, which is one of my favorite poems of Polly Murray's from the Dark Testament. I sing of a new American, separate from all others, yet enlarged and diminished by all others. I am the child of kings and serfs, free men and slaves, having neither superiors nor inferiors, progeny of all colors, all cultures, all systems, all beliefs. I've been enslaved, yet my spirit is unbound. I've been cast aside, but I sparkle in the darkness. I've been slain, but live on in the rivers of history. I seek no conquest, no wealth, no power, no revenge. I seek only discovery of the illimitable heights and depths of my own being. I thought this poem in particular really highlights Saint Pauli as being very prophetic. I always think of him, and I say him, because we know historically that the identity of Round being a woman really didn't fully encapsulate his experiencing of themself. So I like to play with pronouns in those ways, but I think this poem in general really speaks to his prophecy around what I would think of like a transformative healing justice, like what it means to reconcile with the multitudes of us as people. So how can we think of ourselves as oppressor and oppressed and recognizing that that is really where any kind of transformation is possible at first, just thinking about um, how do we hold all of these multitudes within ourselves? And I think that Polly did that the best. I chose the poem in particular also as a non-binary Black trans man with white lineage, also reconciling my own power and privilege and multitude of histories. And I really feel that Polly, more so than many other ancestors, really give light and power to my own positionality.